Okay. So here we are. Another season of the show beginning now. So, uh, for those of you who do not know, this is Unstandardized English, a podcast that originally was going to be a very narrowly focused podcast where I was going to take individual words or phrases that appear to be neutral, but actually, if you analyze them, have possibly racist uh, connotations, undertones. The first uh, episode way back two years ago at this point was about the difference between expats and immigrants, right? Still the most listened to episode of the podcast because whenever I tell people about this podcast, they go back to the first one. I tell you, my audio was bad in the first season. I didn't know what I was doing, uh, but people like that episode, whatever. However, I don't focus very well. For the new people listening, I'm neurodivergent and I'm black. I would hope you know the second part, but uh, you can tell in this that I'm not very good at sticking to a script, so I don't even write one. I have some general topics, and I talk to the guests about them, but we just sort of say whatever's on our minds. And we go from there. Um, So now, I build this show as an analysis of white epistemology or epistemological whiteness. So really the, the knowledge base that all of our ideas come from. Um, and we also talk about racial linguistic ideologies, which is not my term, obviously. Um, but we talk about how race and language intersect. So there's episodes about different words, like I originally said, about language teaching in general. And sometimes I talk more broadly about the issues in academia, different types of hierarchies and oppression and and harm and ultimately it's all tied to racism and whiteness because that's where my research is i am a doctoral candidate now at cuny hunter college um if all continues to go correctly i will be graduating sometime in 2022 hopefully um my dissertation is i I teach whiteness classes on the side here and my dissertation is going to be Who's the, I don't believe personally that any of the anti-racist trainings and so forth that are going on now will work on people who don't want to be there. I don't think you can force people into anti-racist actions. I think you can push people who are on the fence, but I don't think someone's going to start completely opposed to it and then turn and take a class and now they are really doing some work unless there's some selfish gain in it, um, which case they didn't really change much. Frankly, I don't actually care what people's motivations are, but the point, the point, oh, there's some sound, whatever. Um, but then people chose to take my class. Who is the white person who chooses to take a whiteness class? Well, not, not an anti-racist class, but a class that's specifically about whiteness and white, and white education, white spaces, and so forth. You know, so I'm really sort of seeing, like, who are the people what are the stories of the people that leads them to take a whiteness class? And then what after the class did they do? Because the goal of the class was them to leave the class and go back to their organization, institution, life, and do something. And so that's what the dissertation is about. I'm interviewing some people who've been in the class with me. Should be interesting. I'm also in the process of writing a book, um, which is not specific, not as broad as that. It's not about whiteness in general, but that's specifically about the centering of whiteness and language education. Um, that book, which is indeed under contract and all, and I've written, well, by the time you hear this, I will have written 
almost all of the first draft of the manuscript. Um, so like 70,000 words. That one is about, like I said, the centering of whiteness and language teaching. Um, the first part of the book is sort of a weaving of like history, and theory, and concepts as to how we got to the place where whiteness uses language teaching as a tool of pathologization. Um, also mixes in, you know, conceptualizations of ability and intelligence and all those things. And of course, blackness. Um, the second section is all about seven different ways that, uh, you know, language teaching is harmful, is callous, corrupt, and cruel, and how those ways are tied to whiteness. And the third section is based on my research. It's the same group of people, um, people who were took class with me, but they're specifically language teachers because I want to see who is the white language teacher who wants to do something about whiteness. And then I propose some broader solutions based on that as to what can be done about the industry and the field. It'll be out in 2023. Hopefully you are all still paying attention to me by that point. Um, again, for this is just a sort of intro in case there are new people. Um, I... You might as well know, I'm 35. I live in Queens, or more accurately, I live on unceded Muncie Lenape territory. Uh, Muncie Lenape and Canarsie territory, they seem to overlap a little bit. Um, but for those of you who aren't aware of all of that, I live in Queens. Um, I have a wife who appears on this show once a year. Every year she's in the penultimate episode. And I have a son named Ezel who is sort of the impetus for a lot of what I am doing because I started this research before him, but he was born right before we all found out about the pandemic. And it just made it really clear to me that I couldn't do any kind of dull research that was just going to sort of catalog racism. But like I needed to, to, to create these classes so that someday the teachers he had might have a better chance of treating him better because I ultimately went to a lot of exclusive and predominantly white schools myself and nobody was, nobody said any slurs to me or anything like that. But, you know, I was isolated and uh, I don't want him to feel that way. I don't expect to send him to the same independent schools that I went to, but still, there's still a lot of white teachers and they can still cause a lot of harm to black students. Um, so I'm trying to do something about that in all of the ways that I can. To that end, last year on my season premiere, I also told you people what I did over the summer. This year, I didn't do that much. Um, I taught a couple of my, I did a couple of presentations on my stuff. I'm building a new present. I've been doing the same presentation based on my Decentering Whiteness article um, for a while, but now I'm building one off of that. And then I had a, a magazine article published with BJ Ramjatan and Scott Stiller in Language Magazine and a second part of that. Uh, should have just come out by the time this episode is released. There will be a third part later this year. Um, and that's all about we're envisioning a version of English language teaching after whiteness has been decentered. Stuff that I'm also, you know, bringing into my book. Um, but otherwise, it wasn't nearly as much published this summer. I do have a lot of projects that I'm working on now. Um, I have a couple of book chapters, um, a pretty long uh, journal article that I'm working on. A shorter journal article and a couple of presentations. I have I just did a 
by the time this comes out, I will have just done my first keynote presentation in uh, Orange County for Orange County language teachers. So that's cool. And I have a, a another keynote presentation, but this one should be in person in May of next year. And uh, that'll be a big opportunity for me. Not so much trying to brag, just so you all have a sense of what I'm doing here. Um, and yeah, if any of you listen to this and are interested in talking to me, working with me, yeah, you can obviously hit me up on the Twitter account where you probably found this, or on my other Twitter page at JPP Gerald, but otherwise um, you can go to my website, JPP Gerald and you can find all of my information uh, for contact because I want to talk to more people who are trying to work against the harm that whiteness does Uh, there's also a Patreon for this, the link is in the show notes, so if you go to the show notes on the page you will see that there's a link that you can donate if you like what you hear. Anything is appreciated. You know, I don't really make money from this. It's just enough to basically convince myself that it's worth spending the time to do this. That's how much money I make from it. Enough that it's worth spending the time to do this instead of any other projects I have. Um, And yeah, there are not particularly perfect but there are also transcripts available of not all of the episodes i only started doing it last season once i got patreon supporters um but i do you know put the stuff through a transcription app and i edit it till it makes sense um because i talk pretty fast i'm not talking that fast right now but when i'm actually in the conversation it'll be a lot faster um and yeah that's the intro for this season welcome all right so this year there's i've got a bunch already lined up Um, pretty interesting conversations. And today I'm talking to Dr. Maria Rosa Brea, who's at NYU. And she is a speech language pathologist, but she, and I'll let her tell you this in a moment, is a little conflicted about really her field altogether. So we are going to talk about languages and pathology, especially since pathologization is a big part of the book that I'm writing and I think that English language teaching and a lot of colonial language teaching and language ideologies and language practices exist to create pathologization for groups of people who are meant to be exploited but we'll get into all of that in a second so this episode season three episode one of unstandardized English is going to begin in a second and like I said it's about languages and pathology Hope you enjoy. Glad to have you here. Oh, it changed. It changed. It used to say this meeting is being recorded. Now it says recording in progress. Um, Zoom is Zoom is changing things all the time. All right, folks. So uh, welcome back to Unstandardized English. We are here on season three premiere. I'm JPB Gerald. I'm the host. You know that. I'm here with Professor Maria Morosa Brea. Nope, not Morosa. Maria Rosa Brea. Uh, (laughs) Trying to say too many things at once. Uh, But if you would like to introduce yourself to the people, tell them a little bit what you do, where you work, and all of that sort of thing, we will start our conversation. So welcome, Maria. Gracias. Uh, It's great to be here. My name is Maria Rosa. Like uh, Justin just told you, I am a clinical associate professor in the Department of Communicative Sciences and Disorders um, at New York University that 
long way of basically saying I'm a speech language therapist who is training speech language therapists to be. I'm also multilingual, um, born and raised in the Dominican Republic, came to the United States at the age of 17. So I'm an immigrant. Um, all of that being threats to my existence that I bring into every space. So it's wonderful to be here. Good, because one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on, aside from us having developed sort of a, you know, scholarly relationship and all that, is that I think you have some really interesting points of view on what you do in general. Now, the podcast, broadly speaking, is about language education, but uh, I don't think that, and I think part of the problem, what sort of works against solidarity is that we silo so much, you know, like I'm not a linguist right, per se. I'm not saying you are, I'm just saying I'm not a linguist. Um, That's not what I do. I don't study like language variation. I was a language teacher, right? I taught English. Um, However, I don't necessarily think that that is, that should be all that separate from like a writing teacher, right? You know, a literature teacher. And I don't think that those people should be all that separate from a literacy teacher. Right. And I don't think those people should be all that separate from linguistics. I don't think they'd be all that separate. You, know, you get what I'm saying. Um, they are different schools. They have different things. Like I, I can't do what a linguist does because I haven't been trained. Um, and I can't do what you do because I haven't been trained. But we're all working with language and education in some fashion. And I think that all of the broad societal ideologies underpinning it are not that different. Um, because although you are calling yourself a speech language therapist, it is often referred to as speech language pathology. Um, And I think that there is something to be said about that. (laughs) So it's funny that you started there. Uh, That is is an intentional word choice Mm -hmm. for me. Um, As you started, you know, sort of this portion of the conversation saying that I have very particular ideas and or thinking revolving what my purpose is in these spaces. And I think that those ideas have always been there. I'm a curious person by nature, Um, but I don't think I was gutsy enough to start calling myself a certain thing up until the last, I would say, five years that I've been in academia. You know, so like there's something that comes with kind of growing in maturity, both in age, I'm a, I'm a parent of a 16-year-old, um, I'm in my mid-40s, as well as, you know, just with being in the quote-unquote, the institution, although it's not a quote-unquote, like the institution of, of the academy for as long as I have been now, like over 13 years. So like you, um, I, I was actually very fortunate that I was trained by people who went across disciplinary lines um, that even though their degrees were in speech, language, pathology, they worked very um, often with teachers, um, teachers who who were primarily teaching in the institution of special education, okay, or teachers who were you know, language arts and or general education teachers. And also my mentor, Elaine Silliman, um, in, in the University of South Florida, also was one of the first people to look at sort of these 
what we call now interprofessional collaboration, right? It's an interdisciplinary collaboration. So there's some studies that she did back in the day looking at how general ed teachers, special ed teachers, speech language therapists could work together in planning instructional activities in an effort to cut across the silos because it is that interdisciplinary collaboration that gets us at uh, really being, you know, I'm going to use the word inclusive, although there's also some, right, that the, every word that we use can have its connotations or has its connotations. So, so a lot of my thinking kind of comes from that perspective. I tend to be a person who also looks at a, at a thing from different lenses. I don't like, you know, I, I can be rigid sometimes, and thinking like if I find that space where I feel like oh this is like a nice warm space for me to think I like this way of thinking um, then I do get comfortable um, but that doesn't mean that I, I I'm not dogmatic to the extent that I'm not able to accommodate for for multiple uh, perspectives and so when I don't like the way when I don't see that the, what I'm reading accommodates and or shows that there's possibilities that maybe I've experienced or my students have experienced or my clients or, 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 or you know, kids I ended up uh, providing um, education for in the schools have experienced, then I say there's something about the frame that's not working. How can we look at it differently? You know, what that can goes to it. Too much? No, no, it goes to, I think you said curious, and I think another word is, is sort of restlessness, you know, yeah. because I think, and I'm not, I'm, I'm describing myself also, because you know, part of it is just the way my brain works, but it's always been that way, and like, you know, I came into my studies, my doctoral studies, that is, very like, you know, eager, right, now one should be, um, and I'm, you know, learning like, literature review, you know, and here, and then they're all, here's what you got to do to do X, Y, and Z. And then I was sort of taking a step back and realizing like, how many people in this field actually get what they want by following the steps, right? And how many people get what they want by not following the steps? There doesn't, there's, there's certainly not robust evidence one way or the other. And that's of course within the paradigm of academic research, but even outside of it, even anecdotally, I don't have any reason to believe that if I follow these steps A, B, and C exactly and fit within the boxes, then I'm gonna end up you know, in the place that they say that I can be any more so than by trying to actually stay true to myself and really look at these things from different lenses and see what comes up, what shakes out, you know? And I think that sometimes the institution, not one school, but all of academia, you know, it's, it's more interested in, the, the, this, is, this word has a technical meaning, but I think the connotation is important. It's more interested in replication than it is in innovation. Innovation. Right? Yeah, you know, because I think that they, what we learned my first semester is we were judging a good study based on it, whether or not it was, whether the reportage on it was clear enough that I could go out and replicate it if I had the same materials and funding and so on. And that's useful, I guess, but like that doesn't necessarily mean that what they're looking at is interesting. So like, it's like, it's, it's, you know, technically sound, I think is how to describe that. And being technically sound is important, I guess, but is it as important as being you know, searching for something. Because when you think about pathology, and of course my whole book is about pathology, so there's that. And people on the podcast, yes, you're going to hear about my book as I continue to work on it. Sorry. Um, but like, 
I honestly think in a way, it's speech language pathology is, it's, it's like one of those um, saying the quiet part out loud things. Just like, wait a second. I mean, that's, that's actually a, a slightly more honest uh, descriptor <laughs> of what some of some, not all, but some of the people in the field are doing. And some of the other parts of language there, you know, because I, I think that, for example, like we, we know that it's not necessarily the right thing to say anymore to say English as a second language, right? Because it might not be their second language and so on. Or we want to say, there's all these acronyms, all these titles and so forth. And most of them are wrong. And some of them are, are harmful. They're not all harmful, but some of them are just incorrect. Um, but I don't think any of them really get at what's happening. Uh, if what's happening is harmful, I don't think that by giving it a better name, it will make it less harmful per se. However, it should still, like, you need to both change the name and the practice. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, actually, that's, I almost had this aha moment when you said that. I had never really pondered what you said, the raw honesty that there is in, our, in the name of my profession. You know, it's like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to say, this is what I'm going to do. And this is what I'm going to do. You know, I'm, the pathology of communication is what we're, what I'm going to be <laughs> treating, um, which, right, is a lot more covert when it comes to linguistics. It's a lot more covert. That, that colonial view, right, because there's colonial yeah. ideologies are much more covert in other fields, including education or pedagogy, right? You know, the pedagogy. special education. <laughs> well, there is that. Yeah, yeah. there is that the industry of yeah. uh, special education. But I, I never really thought about it. You know, you kind of like, uh, you just brought me into this like aha moment. And so then how do you, because for me, what's interesting is I, so I've been a speech language therapist, right? For, for uh, 21 years. And, you know, most of my career, um, I would say the first half of my career was spent in K-12. Um, most of it was in situations in which, I mean, I had one self-contained classroom for children who had language learning disabilities or language learning disabled, you know, third to fifth graders. Um, Love that setting. I was with a, with a co-teacher. Um, I also did you know, I, I would also go and, and provide um, other kinds of services across the, the school that I was employed in. But that was, you know, primarily, but part of it was like this, these relationships that you form with the individuals with whom you are co-creating knowledge, right? So really it was about the pedagogy for me, not so much about the fixing the people that were in that space that had a specific name in order for them to be okay to be in the space with me. Okay, because that's, that's really what this is about. So that was part of it. And then the other part was in a, I actually worked for Metropolitan Ministries, uh, had a charter school for their uh, people who were living in homelessness in the shelter. And so it was a very transient uh, classroom setting. And I was the speech language therapist in that setting. And then I did a lot of consultations outside of that. That was a really interesting time in my life. It was really challenging time in my life too, to be in a setting in which you had these kind of like revolving doors to the kids that you were interacting with and the, these family structures that were not the family structures that you would define were family structures. I was like, 
kind of coming against with my first, what were my definitions? What was my privilege? And then how do I kind of center, center what it is that knowledge and learning is for people who are with me for a short period of time, right? So like the letting go of control. And so, so that was the first half. But what's interesting is for me then, it's been a lot about the teaching and less about the pathologizing and the identifying that something was wrong. I did diagnostics for a while. I even worked for a company that primarily, well, it's not a company, it's actually the, the what would be like transition team or, you know, after early steps to uh, into the schools. But my favorite thing was this space of, of co-creating pedagogies. And a lot of it had to do with language and, and the intersect into like access to print, you know, whatever print was called, up, you know, at, or conceived of as that at the time. So I don't know, I have to think a little bit about that. Like, have I ever really called myself that? And am I, am I showing fragility in like not wanting to call myself a speech language pathologist? Like, is that what it is? And what is the honesty about it? And, you know, how does the field move, move forward? Well, cause I think that even if you take it all the way to what I used to do, you know, teaching the standardized English in the classroom, Right. Um, one of the things and I don't want to give away too much because I want people to buy the book, but uh, that I was talking about is the stuff that I was writing recently was about how what we're doing is teaching standardized English. Now, if you accept that, you can either just go on with it, and therefore at least you're being honest with what you're doing, or you can work against it. So I think that. It depends. If you change how you refer to yourself and you also change your practice, I think it's fine. I think the problem is that people change what they're saying about themselves or the field changes what it's called, but it doesn't change the practice. Because like to me, the example of that is that like, for example, I said the example like four times. Um, my, in my doctoral program, we had to take three repack courses which is like research evaluation. It's some hunter thing. It's anyway, like subject matters, right? On certain research. So one of them was special education disabilities. One was um, literacy and one was uh, language learners, right? And now it, just based by chance, like the order of it doesn't matter. You could take one, but they didn't care about the order. You just had to take all three. And um, my cohort happened to go through language learners first. And I said, oh, I got a master's. I said, oh, this is gonna be easy now. Um, and I got lucky. Now it turned out it wasn't that hard if only because it really, that's where I got introduced to so many of the more radical stuff. You know, that's where I got introduced to Flores and Rosa. And that's where I got introduced to, now it was not necessarily Hunter that did that. It's because one of the two professors was interested in, in like working in translanguaging and so forth, right? The other professor, oh. but um, <laughs> if I hadn't had a professor who really wanted to push those ideas, we still would have stuck with the very like, let's be nice to everybody version of things. But the class was called re the REPAC. That's just what Hunter calls things. Re you know, I forget what the acronym stands for, but it was um, multilingual learners, right? Now, here's how I feel about that. It is technically more accurate in that, generally speaking, they are multilingual, right? 
they're not necessarily bilingual. They might have might speak four languages. So it's technically more accurate that they are multilingual learners. Fine. But if the structures are the same and you're still putting them over there, oh, you're not calling them English language learners anymore, but they're just, they're still over there. Then you didn't really do anything. <laughs> yeah. And I think that I see that in a lot of fields, especially in the last, I would say in the last couple of years, at least for my field, um, where, you know, I, I, I'll use the example that I can use is, you know, in my field, there's always been an emphasis on the approach to, the, the approach to social justice is non-existent. What has been is this, has been this push for cultural competence, which of course, you know, we know, <laughs> we know, once again, connotations, right? So what's happened is like, okay, well, we're not going to call it cultural competence anymore. We're going to call it cultural, cultural humility. And now the push is we're going to move it. We're going to move the lever just a little bit more to call it cultural responsiveness. But what we're not realizing is where that comes from, like what that actually, what those names actually mean, where, what is the, what are the ideologies that feed into it? So I think we go back to like almost the beginning of this conversation where you started saying some of these underlying threats, which I think we've had also these conversations on Twitter with some of our colleagues from other universities too. It's really this, you know, I, I, I recently talked to a couple of people and said, you know, we, we keep we keep going to the branches of the tree to prune to prune the tree back to get it ready for whatever is coming next. And we've forgotten that what feeds those branches is actually the roots. And until we address the illnesses within the roots, or at least we know what exactly is the feed given to the root system, we're not going to be able to deal with the trunk, which are your systems, nor are we going to be able to deal with the practices, which are your branches and your leaves and flowers and whatever you want to call it. So I think that, you know, if anything we can do in these conversations across fields is actually get to that point is what are the ideological root systems that are, of course, you know, we know we know the history of colonialism and coloniality, right? Within within our within our fields, but how can we address that in a way that is accessible, portable? I'm not going to use the word palatable because I don't agree with that piece, but accessible and portable in such a way that then the trunks can grow differently, or at least be shifted because trees are adaptable, right? And the branches can grow in different ways. I think that until we do that, we're not going to be able to get anywhere. I mean, yeah, because like uh, people sometimes I make a point and people want to argue with me on the particular point. I'm like, but you're missing the point entirely. Like, I don't really care. Fine. But I, I'm trying to take an ax to this tree here. You know, like uh, I might point out something on this branch, but that's not really what I care about. Um, and Right, you know, because thinking about the the cultural, yeah. When I the, when when I start in that class, which is two and a half years ago now, all of the stuff for me happened in the last two and a half years. But it, it it's it's more that it brought out stuff that I already you know, um, and the, the first actual research I did, which was not like IRB, but like within the class, I made a Qualtrics survey, and I asked people, for, people from my master's program, I'm like just to see 
because we had the same program. So I knew what I knew what the answer should be. So I was curious what they would say, like their interpretation of certain questions. And so I asked them if they taught anything about race or racism in their classes. Now they could say no, that's not necessarily their fault. Uh, yes or no is fine. So then if they said no, then they moved on to the next question. If they said yes, I asked them to ex give me an example. And a lot of the people, and this is not a lot, it's not a large sample here, but some of the small number of people who responded um, said yes. I often try to discuss culture in the class. I'm like, that's not what I said. <laughs> and this kept happening. And I'm like, you know, I said the about race. People are like, yes, the culture. I'm like, that's not what I said. Um, and I mean, this, this is documented in the research when people want to slide to culture when you're really, it's not always race, it could be language, but I'm just saying, they always, it's very easy for people to talk about culture, you know, because uh, culture is a place through which people can connect and so forth. And it doesn't necessarily make people uncomfortable to talk about culture. And it's really easy when you talk about cultural competence, like that was, you know, that's like, that's just knowing stuff about people's culture, right? But what does that even mean? I don't and know can you means. ever no. get to be competent? I mean, I just, I love it when, when organizations or institutions come up with standards for competence in the area of culture. How could you ever, I mean, I remember sitting down, so, so talk about like, okay, talk about culturally relevant literature for a grad student who had just come in. So when, when I, when I enrolled in the master's program in speech language pathology, I had been here for approximately five years. And I remember sitting down in this course called Multicultural Issues, oh, which is still a course that is very pre present in a lot of curricula um, out there in different programs. And sitting down and reading this textbook about an overview of Hispanic Americans in the United States. Oh boy. And you know, you think about common models of culture include your iceberg, right? So think about the surface level of the iceberg, the top part that everybody sees. And that's essentially what's being discussed in this chapter. And I remember sitting there and going to my professor and saying, This is not me. Like this is not who I am. I mean, I, I, first of all, I would never call myself Hispanic. So that was the first thing. I didn't quite consider myself yet. I was, a, I was an immigrant. I had my green card, but I didn't consider myself U.S. American. I don't call this space where we're at in America, yeah. okay? Yeah. So there's a lot of Americas. Um, so there's that piece too. And so then, you know, so I remember sitting down and thinking something is not right here. Like this is this tour of cultures, this grand tour of cultures, this doesn't represent my story. So, you know, you fast forward now and I've been an academician or a person who teaches. A my classmate, and I don't know if she listens to this or not, but I'm saying a positive thing about it. Um, when she first came in, one of the things she was interested in was when she wanted to measure, um, I forget what the, the um, variable would have been, but uh, she wanted to see if there was a difference in how students, like gifted students were treated, depending on whether or not um, 
I can't remember exactly what it was. Gifted students of color were treated based on whether or not the teachers had gone through cultural competency training. And I was like, all right. Uh, um, but she, she really has improved. She, she stopped talking about that after she was in the class and so forth. So, you know, like uh, you, what you come in with, like I hadn't done any of this stuff before I came to my private. So you could basically see that, um, you know, there is a value to some of these classes. Um, not the multi, you know, yeah, multi, that's like very 1980s, I don't know. Um, and what the problem, there's a lot of problems. But one of the main problems is that, you know, it just flattens everything. You know, it's 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 like these people eat pizza and these people wear skirts and I don't know what, that's it. And it's just like, oh, and I'll flip to the next page and that's where this other country is. Like, um, it's like reading a travel book. Uh, and there's a value to reading a travel book if you're going to a place, but that's not what it's uh, anyway. Um, and I don't the the obvious conflict of interest is that you have to talk about the power structure, but the people teaching the class are the power structure, so they don't want to do that, <laughs> you know. And and and, and they they kind of know that, but they don't really know what to do about it. And I don't say that I'm not part of the power structure too, the passport from this country and I'm a man and so on and so forth. But like, uh, like there's, you know, it's all these euphemisms and they don't want to talk about the real problem. Um, and like I heard someone give a presentation at, I forget what conference last year, and it was on what they were calling cultural chauvinism. And I'm like, oh, that's a new one. You know, and I'm just like, okay, it's a new one. And I, I get what they mean. And it, it just means thinking your culture is better than other people. And I'm just like, we have words for these things, you know. <laughs> yeah. We we have them. Um, and you don't have to use them, but it's like any any I get why they do this because they're trying to, you know, put some a spoonful of sugar so that the medicine will go down for these people, right? But I'm just like, I don't think, what, what is candy? It's not just candy, but it's where I read it. Um, you know, the, the moral suasion doesn't work on people, right? You're not going to persuade people morally. They're gonna have to make that decision themselves. And a lot of people do make that, I had to make the decision, we all had to make the decision, right? Um, so all we're doing is just, you know, lightly stroking their back and saying, come, come on, come along with me, come, come along. And they're not, they're not going to do it. They're not going to be, if they, if they do it, they're not going to be committed to it. Like one of the problems I'm having, and I don't want to say this, well, whatever, uh, is that I started something in, in, in the, the state affiliate that I'm in and the problem is because I'm a board member, I have to let everybody into the little group I started or anybody who wants to join. And that's fine, I don't have a problem with them. We're doing some stuff, We're doing a presentation, that'll be cool. But the thing that I'm trying to build with you and others and all that, uh, you know, I chose you people. So like, because I'm just like, sometimes I gotta know that people really wanna do some stuff and then we can argue and so I'm sure we will, but like, I, you, you can't, that sounds like I'm saying, I'm arguing for exclusivity and I don't need that. Um, I just mean that, you know, trying to morally persuade people is a fool's errand. Um, if that worked, it would have worked a long time ago. <laughs> like yeah, it would be, this would be over. Then, yeah, and then there's like that fine line too that I, sometimes I ask myself, like in that in that pursuit to morally moral persuasion, where are we trying to then 
change people to our side of thinking, right? So where where does indoctrination begin and end, right? So because like like I said, you know, I I feel like like you've said, I feel like, and what I've seen it even in my students. So, so I teach these courses now, and it you know it doesn't matter. You know, we, we have a syllabus, we have a starting point, but the reality of it is that we all come to the, the, the topic, say the topic of ideology, that is one of the first topics that I cover in one of my courses, or the topic of positionality, that is another one of the topics that I think actually is a really interesting way to start to, to persuade people to think about what it is that they bring to these spaces when they're interacting with people as opposed to the idea of bias, which puts people on the defensive immediately, right? I've seen it with my students. Um, you know, either that or they want to sing what their, what their song of oppression has been. So then it becomes this like oppression Olympics, right? Across the different groups. Uh, or people, individuals, it's not really groups, it's individuals. So I think, you know, one, one thing that I've realized is in teaching, that's the pedagogical piece, not the moral persuasion piece to organize and do something together for change, which is the other piece that you're talking about, right? So like that kind of finding the commonality, the common thread, the, the, what are the, what is the, the, what's the fire that's, that's feeding us to move forward. But in teaching is a little bit different. So you hold the responsibility and the power as the instructor. And yet at the same time, you got to realize that everybody's going to be, including yourself, coming at these topics, coming at these, you know, for lack of a better word, right? Um, these ideas from different starting points. And so just like I came in here today, I mean, being a speech language therapist for 21 years, and you said, well, pathology, you know, to, to name pathology to begin with, like, holy moly, like, I had never thought about it from that perspective, like the honest, the raw honesty of like, it's out there, and I'm going to do it without shame. <laughs> right. And like, how do you deal with that? And then like, you know, like, you're kind of like your path with your off ramp from that avenue saying, okay, well, you then you can either choose to go at it and repeat it or go at it and change something about it fight the system, change the system, right? Well, so I think from the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm just saying you can't do anything about it if you don't want to say, you can't say what it is. Exactly, exactly. And and just naming it something else is not enough. I think also we get lost in finding the right words that will encompass everything that we want to mean. It's like I saw this whole long thread the day before yesterday about Latinx, Latine you know, Hispanic, the gender inclusivity. And you know what, in the end, like, I know what it means to me. I know where I see myself and that's all I can speak to. I can't speak to what it means to somebody else. And I think that that's the space where the idea that you also brought up at the beginning of replicability, right? Which is this idea that we are homogenizing what we are studying in order to replicate that we are creating these categories that are able to be repeatable, observable, identifiable, then are we doing the same thing with names? You know, the systems impose the names. Like you said, you can call somebody a multilingual learner and you're still going to put them in the same class with the same kind of segregationist approach to the instruction. Then what have you done other than just paint a pretty word 
without really doing anything else, right? Is is renaming doesn't do it. It's not enough to doing it. Just like I said with cultural responsiveness. So I think that you know when you talk about this idea of connecting with the people who you um, with whom you can create those communities of belonging, right? Co-create those communities of belonging and uh, activate or move forward action, you know, do the, the things that you, that as a group you think can be done, you know, then, then sometimes there has to be a little bit of exclusivity to begin with at least. Well, so my thought on this is that I've always, you know, it's like, do you, how, how do you both change policies sort of things, which includes names, right? Um, categories, and how do you change practice? Because they're related, but they're not the same thing. And you have to do both over time. And so when it comes to changing the practice of both teaching and research and so forth, I think that's where you have to really find your people and work with them, right? Um, and when it comes to policy stuff, you know, in terms of the name stuff, like ultimately, it's not that the names don't matter, it's that the names don't have any weight unless you change the practice. So you have to do both. And because like one thing that the project that I'm working on is we're looking at, for example, the New York State certification for like TESOL, right? For public school teachers. And there's a whole bunch of deficit nonsense in that certification, right? You don't necessarily have to, you really just have to take a test. So I don't know why all these words are in there. Um, <laughs> like, like, just it, the I'm same saying, thing for the extensions, like yeah. the bilingual extensions. So, you yeah. know, because I am the director of the bilingual extension at NYU for uh, communication disorders. So it's same thing. Yeah. So it disorders, I guess, another one of those, right? Um, yeah. But, but. So on one hand, I'm like, who cares about the, what's the words in the certification? Because it does. If you change the words, it's not gonna, but there are there is this there's this. Although we hear a lot about the angry people who are resisting all the self and so forth, there's not that many of them, right? Is the the real issue for me is there's this big mass of people in the middle who just sort of float along with the river, right? Those are the people where I think that the names and policies are important because they are just going to keep floating along the river and they're like oh it's it's multilingual now okay i'll just do the most you know and, and like so if we, if we found a better you know name for it then they would just do it and you know uh it's the same so like that's why i do think although the practice is going to have to come from people who are really committed to that the name stuff matters it's just that you have to do both and maybe 10 years from now the, the word has changed and the practice has changed and then you just have to try to minoritize the people who aren't going to come along with you because they may or may not be in the numerical minority in the practice, but we, they should I get- just they keep should. wondering though, Justin, like I keep wondering, is, is the name really tied to, I mean, the name is tied to a practice, right? But be, before the name, there's an idea, there's a thought. Like if you think about the way language even becomes, owned, quote unquote, right, by us as users, before there is a label for something, there's a concept that reportedly, right, that, that we have built. So if that is the case, then is it really enough just to change a name if you are not questioning 
the idea that developed the need. I mean, no, you're completely right about that. I'm saying that like, I think, like I wish we would leave the name alone until we change the ideas behind it. Yeah. I do think eventually we would need to change the name, but I think that the names and the acronyms and all that stuff, we just, it's just alphabet soup. I mean, you know, and, and like, I don't care. Like I'm gonna, if someone from an oppressed group tells me to call them X, Y, and Z, I'm gonna do it. But like, if, if someone from on high tells me, I'm just like, you don't care. You don't care. You're just trying to make yourself feel better. Um, and like, and, and because then there's, you know, I cut one of the things that I do and, and maybe cynically, but like the first thing that I, the article I wrote, I came up with a term with the altruistic shield thing, right? Because I just said like, no one knows who I am. If I don't come up with something, no one's going to pay attention to me. <laughs> uh, but, but it, it, you know, it was describing something. It was a conceptual argument. I didn't like go measure the altruistic shield because I don't care. Um, but like, and then some people are like, is it measurable? I'm like, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> it just confounded some people. Like, but what is the percent? I'm like, I don't care. Um, and so I think there's still value in, in creating some new things, but it's when it becomes like official policy and it's, you know, overarching. Yeah, I wish that whether, I don't think it's all that important right now to be worrying about the names that are in, on official policy. On the other hand, I think we're trying to use like that project with the with the certification like we probably could through the state affiliates find out who's in charge of putting those words in there i'm sure it's some committee somewhere we could find out but we could tell them hey you should change it maybe they would but the people who like you know because like to me and and you know there's when you talk about a coloniality of a you know, a white supremacist, uh, uh, you know, capitalistic and all that stuff, all of these hierarchies that are very closely tied to language. Um, there's a lot of people who like that. And I don't mean in an actively, they're not walking, you know, whatever. I don't know that they walk around thinking that way. They're not thinking about like, I'm gonna go colonize. Like, it's not like that. But like, they like that superiority that they can use through language. Like, well, what are the things that I've been writing about lately is how, you know, language education, but language in general is, is really a perfect tool for pathologization. Um, because you, it's very easy not to be respected if they can say that there's something wrong with the way you communicate. Um, and once that's been thrown on you, it's really hard to get it off. Um, you can try. Well, you can try to like remove your accent or something. But like once once they've tagged you with it, it's, it's that's it. That's it. You know, um, unless you have other things going for you, whatever. But like so. Uh, on the other hand, you can't really get rid of pathologization without language. So it's like it has to it has to work against the thing that it's being used for, and that's the paradox. What why it's worth working through the language space to push against these ideologies, because if we just give up on language, then <laughs> we're never going to get out of this. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you on, on, all, on all the pieces that you've discussed. And I think to some extent that to me was why Ophelia Garcia's paradigms or frameworks, why um, Jonathan Rosa and um, 
Loris's paper were also so like, wow. Like when my students read that stuff, they say, oh, this is a little dense, but I get to the nugget of what it is that they're saying and they're languaging in a way that is not hierarchical. And in other words, they're suggesting less language in a way that is not pitting this against this, which if you look also at literature that has looked at, to some extent, the pedagogies of the home, you know, which kind of came like as a, as a way of resistance to um, the minimization of, of uh, families, particularly families of color, families of, who were low income, right? Or who were marginalized in some way as having low, less than low, or low the socioeconomic status. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the deficit lenses. You know, in a way, it, it's, it's doing that with language, right? It's doing that within the language systems themselves. And I think that there's a lot in that that can actually chart the path for for fields like yours and like mine. I think that that's the way you can create change. Because the other piece to this that I've noticed is, you know, when you're working with people about, you know, kind of dismantling, here's how the system is not working or the systems are not working. Here's how the systems are oppressive. My students in general, the reaction is like, they feel like they're throwing their hands up in the air and they're thinking, well, I don't know how to fix that. So like, what do I do, right? But in a way, then if you provide, well, here's an alternate perspective. How might you use that in an activity in your classroom? How might you, so even just presenting that avenue for application and imagination, really that is what's needed. It's an opportunity to imagine, which is not necessarily gonna come out always out of research spaces because of the emphasis sometimes on replicability, but it can come out of the pedagogical spaces if we're not looking for replication to there. Yeah, I think one of the things um, I consider with this, because you know, every time I go to a conference, even if they're online, is you know, people want people want lesson plan tricks, they want a tip, right? And I'm just like <laughs> Like it's not, it's just you, you can figure it out. Um, and they want people to take these really challenging radical ideas of like, okay, but what's the lesson? I'm like, look, man, um, I get that it needs to be applied. That's kind of what the classes are for. Like when you're saying, you know, you would bring an idea into the class and then you can build your pedagogy so that they can use it in their pedagogy. But people want that from like an article. It's like, okay, but how do I? Act? It's like you have to just think about it. Um, <laughs> and I, because like for example, like I'm not in the language classroom right now, uh, but I also know that I would be really trying to do different things. I, I wish I had a chance. I'm about to go volunteer or something on time. But the point is like, um, if I had read all of the things I read in the last two and a half years and was still, you know, teaching, because I teach, but not this. Um, the whole time I would really have seen my my teaching evolve. It has come into play in my job, which is not about language, but we all use language in our jobs. And I do writing like curriculum development for employee training. And I think that a lot of what we do has a really harsh deficit mindset. So I try to push against it as much as I can. I, there's some of it I can't do anything about, but I also know that the workers just sort of ignore the 
deficit stuff. So I'm like, all right, fine. Then. Um, <laughs> it's just, we just, we give them information that assume they don't know anything and it just bothers me. Um, but they also just ignore the information. So, so it doesn't, so whatever. So, you know, in talking about that, I wonder, I've been very interested, you know, because my field has pathology in it, pathologizing disorders, um, and, and disability from a medical model standpoint, that's how, that's how disability is viewed. I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't say that there's no change at all coming. I do think that there's change. And I also think that globally, like I can just look at speech language pathology within the U.S. Like if you look at it globally, there are things coming out of South Africa, for example, that are really exciting, you know, research uh, approaches and also uh, disruptive ideologies in a positive way, right? So um, so I think that, you know, one thing that I realized that we don't do enough in my field, and I don't know if that's the case, you know, in, in all other fields, but it's the centering of the insider's perspectives, right? So we don't have enough disabled voices within the literature creating these potential paradigms, frames, um, approaches, right? If you did, you would realize too, which is something very important that people should realize that disability is not a monolith, right? That there's all these multiply braided identities that at one point or another are impacted. And so the reason why you can come up with a 10 tip, you know, tip of, you know, 10 things that you should do in order to be culturally responsive or culturally sustaining in your pedagogy is because it's supposed to be centered in the people that you are co-constructing knowledge with. Yes. Great. <laughs> right? I, I, say, I say this in all my presentations. I give them, I give some broad advice that's like, you should do these broad things differently. Like you saw my presentation for you all last year and I was talking about like, you should make sure that you're reading about these topics, right? That's fine because it's not really specific. Um, and I'm not gonna give you a list either. Go to internet is, is easy to use. Um, but like they, I tell people when I present, I'm like, I don't know where you work. I can't tell you what to do, you know? Um, and sometimes I'll give a presentation for coworkers in a space and I might be able to, but they still have to give me a lot of information first, but I'm just like, right. you're still going to know more than me. So like, I, I can't really pretend to be an expert in like your place of work or anything like that. And it's, 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 it, they want, you know, sometimes I know people are just overworked and they don't want to do extra work. I get it. But like, uh, it's not going to work that way because then. They're just gonna say, well, he, he couldn't tell me what to do. So it's just, hold on. There we go. This yeah. happens sometimes when the sun sets. When it gets darker, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that kind of relates back to also that whole culture of productivity and capitalism, right? And what there is time for and what is, um, what is uh oh gosh I'm, the word is well, what's just right what, what's considered valuable yeah you know? exactly it's like what is what yeah what is valued and what is not valued in it's, that it's, sense you know in order for upward mobility to be enacted so it's it's a it's considered a waste of time to think you know because i 
all I really want people, yeah, there's actions I want people to take. And, I, and I'm not talking about when people are working with me directly. I mean, when people read what I write, what mostly I want people to do is think, you know? And it's the same thing with this podcast. I just want people to think, you know, yeah, there are probably things to be done in your workplace or your classroom or whatever, but I don't work there. I'm not you. So I don't feel comfortable saying in your classroom, you should do X, Y, and Z. Frankly, I think it's one thing if you are literally someone's professor, right? Or literally their teacher and they're saying, what should I do? Yeah, you should probably tell them, but (laughs) because they're asking you and that's your job. But like, if, if I am writing an article and I don't know who's reading it or recording the podcast like I know who some of who listens but I don't know exactly who listens you know I don't want to be telling you go to your classroom tomorrow and do these three things and it'll definitely work you should trust me because I think once you're doing that you lost the plot you're not paying attention to any of this you know fairy and stuff and and moving against you know the the bank because you're right doing the banking system nonsense you know and you've already lost the plot you know, um, if you are making grand pronouncements, you need to do X, Y, and Z, right? It's the same thing. Like when I got really good at marathon running like six, seven years ago, people used to ask me what to do. And I'm like, I just started running. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's not, I I say, it's not easy. No, I, it was very difficult. The, the, yeah. The farthest I ran was 30 miles. Cause I did the iron girl in Tampa, Florida, which had two bridges. So like, I'm very proud of myself for having survived that run. I never ran a like a marathon and I just remember talking to myself a lot you know like there's that once that once I hit that seven mile mark or you know 10 mile mark I was like okay I need to start talking to myself like you can do it Maria one more mile right but that's what worked for me yeah I mean you know I ran, 15, <laughs> I ran 15 on Saturday but it's like and I don't have a race to train for I, I'm kind of I kind of need to put one back on my calendar because they you know the race has started again um and I need a goal anyway it's not important but the point is like I I think when I was younger and I had done less work on this sort of thing you know I was much more apt to just tell people you know you should do this this and this 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 and this um and then if it didn't work the problem with that is that you it's very individualized in a bad way because um I think things are all individualized in the sense that each person's individual story is different. But what I'm saying is that like, if I found giving you a long list of things that you should do to fix something, right? And they don't work, it's your fault. <laughs> if that's how it's presented, right? If I give yeah. you 10 tips and tricks and it doesn't work, well then you screwed up. <laughs> yeah. my, tr- my tips and tricks are amazing, right? <laughs> For you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You did them wrong. I don't know. Right. They're trying to turn teaching into a recipe. Right. Right. And I think that that's the other piece to this. So I've been really interesting and through my pedagogy, like really experimental in in kind of redefining or reinserting joy in learning, because I think that particularly in this higher ed spaces, we've sucked the joy out and in place we've we've placed road memorization this idea of like knowing big words that are disciplinary specific or discipline specific um, and somehow that makes you be smart right 
So uh, sometimes a lot of the time, uh, sometimes some uh, with some of my classes, I, I actually engage them in saying, if you can explain this to a person who's not part of this field or a child who is, you know, younger than, than, you know, than you or than your child, do they understand what it is that you just learned? Because that really means that you are learning. And even that, right, that that's pliable. That's something that you can take with you into multiple contexts. So I, I don't know. I think that there's something to be said for that idea. Not that language that is specific, once again, it's not important. Not that languaging in a specific way is not important. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, even when it comes to learning, we've decided what the list is and what learning looks like. And we're kind of looking for that one thing in one way. And then what happens when you have students who have different learning approaches, right? How do we account for that? We account for that because they have to disclose they have a disability. They have to go and turn themselves in into the center that supports them with accommodations. We accommodate. You know, it's not even like the idea of equity per se, that it's just access to the curriculum as it is. It's, it's an accommodation, meaning that they are lesser than everybody else. So I think, I don't know, I've been a little bit disrupted. So I kind of like, you know, going back to what you're saying, like you have to work within the system in terms of something. So I still give, give grades at the end of the semester because I have to, right? But how am I disrupting the system in my own way within my classroom containers? Because those are my centers for innovation. That's kind of how I see it. You know, this because I have two responses to that that I want to try and make sure I say both of because they're important. Um, we talk about sucking the joy out of things and rote memorization. And I wrote about this in my little newsletter last week or something. But <clears throat> I'm in this Facebook group. And this group is mostly people who are getting their doctorates. And it's mostly like an encouragement group, right? Yeah, you read that, right? I don't know if I sent it to you, but, uh, but the short version is this group is mostly people who are graduating and like they'll post like, I just finished my doctorate, you know, everyone's cheering. This is good. This is a good feeling. I'm going to finish next year, most likely. And so, you know, it's great. Um, and then every so often somebody will come in and ask for like advice, right? Sometimes it'll be like, huh, sometimes it'll just be venting. I get stuck on my literature review. This is all fine. But I saw something last month and it really bothered me. Um, and so someone went in and asked a question about, um, <clears throat> quotations in an academic article. Um, you probably saw my thread about this. And the conversation went on and on. But at some point, someone chimed in and said, there shouldn't be any direct quotations in an academic article. Uh, <clears throat> and, and, and like a lot of people were like, Wait, what, what? Um, and then, but then there was a lot of people chiming in to say, no, th this is what they had been taught. that." You, you aren't showing that you understand it when you quote it directly because you can only show your understanding by paraphrasing it. And I'm just like, first of all, first of all, ignoring the fact that that's not a real rule, like ignoring that, that doesn't make any sense on its face because on what you're not gonna read everything that somebody cites. So when you, you just interpret it and say that somebody said it, I'm supposed to trust what you said. <laughs> like you have to do that sometimes, but like you didn't quote any of it. 
I don't know if I, if you didn't quote anything at all and you just cited things, I'd be like, what does that actually say? <laughs> you know, some, I mean, maybe I quote too much, but I think sometimes I try, I'm trying to be in direct conversation with people that I'm citing for epistemology. I'm just citing like a statistic. I don't usually quote it, but I mean, like, you know, if I'm trying to actually point out what these people said, then I usually put in what they said. Anyway, fine. But why was this such a common thing these people believed? Because they, they didn't just believe it, they've been taught it. And they're all recent graduates or they're students now. And then I looked at a couple of things and I found out that almost all of these students were from like shady, like for-profit or, and or like Christian. And I don't mean Christian like St. John's, I mean like Liberty, you know, kind of colleges, right? um schools that are just pumping out the doctorates right you know and this is not me having a problem with christianity or whatever that's not my point um it's the schools that are not you know they're not treating their students right now one might point out that the entire academy the colonial project blah, 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 but you know what i mean <laughs> this, this is like the extreme of it where when you strip away even the positive things of the academy all you're left with is what you're talking about which is this absurd, rigid rule that you should never quote altogether. Now, look, these people are going to end up with terrible articles. They're never going to get anything. Like, who's going to read these things? I don't know. But, like, that to me was the essence of, like, when a school is not reputable, all they will teach is rote rules. Because you don't need to be a good professor or a good program to teach rote rules. It's a list. Right. So, so much of what's being taught is these list things. Now, I don't think it's as extreme as never quote. Right. But it's not so much that it's been taught. It's that it was taught so widely and that they all had internalized it as the only way to succeed. That's um, key there. Yeah. You know, because, you know, this being taught in a few schools is whatever. Um, but the fact that it was like, there were a lot of people chiming in and they, it, they almost were regurgitating it. It's just like, this doesn't show the ability to apply them. I'm like, where, where are you getting these words from? Um, and someone had said that, you know, this is just at, at the highest, they kept using this phrase, the highest level of writing. I'm like, have you read these journals? This is not the highest level of anything. <laughs> the way these things are written. Also, you know? there's something to be said, like some, you know, sometimes you just run into a definition or a quotation that you just, it's really nicely put together. Why the heck would you reinvent the wheel? Like, right. I just, for practicality's sake, I mean, I just think that once again, who owns the knowledge, <laughs> right? Like, that's really the part. And so I think that, you know, at the nugget of this that you mentioned is this idea of internalizing, Right. And then those things become the dogma that people follow. Right. Because that's the problem. So, you know, it, our minds work in categorical ways in some ways. Right. Like we are we are biased to think in binaries, you know, from very early on in order to make sense of the world that we are encountering. And yet when the binaries become the only thing that we think about or we live by, that's when the problems begin. So I think that that idea of internalizing is key and it relates to, I will say this, like just coming clean myself. I had never in my many years, I mean, it took me eight years to finish my PhD. I became a mom in the middle. 
right? I have accrued a tremendous amount of debt that I'm still paying back the, the federal government in the United States uh, for my doctorate. Um, I will say the one thing that was, I've had a naturally curious mind my entire existence, okay? And yet something bigger than me was there, which is this idea, you don't question the hierarchy, you don't question the authority, you don't question power, that whenever I was at the point of looking at these, whatever, ontological categories or whatever I was writing about, okay, that, that needed to potentially be questioned, that criticality wasn't, that muscle was not developed. So in a way, what is scary about those institutions or that institutionalized way of imparting knowledge, okay, is the problem that that was relevant within me as an individual, which is, which is not a problem, but underdeveloped muscle of criticality. Because if you have a bunch of people who don't question what the authority is, then it's easy to control them in the end. And I think that sometimes, you know, because you hear, you hear all these people out there who are rejecting, you know, the vaccine and they think that they're doing it. They think that they're doing it, right? Um, but they're also being fed things from a different authority. Like, it's like, no, wait a second. No, wait a second. Like, you didn't come up with this. subject for me. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, you didn't, but you're not thinking independently at all, right? So that's the problem is that when you say an underdeveloped muscle, right? It's like, it's not just questioning authority. It's questioning it in a, productive way in a productive way you have to think it through it's not just authority bad often it is but okay where, where do you go from there right and 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 also You're thinking right. of, and and also i'm not disagreeing with you i'm sort of building on it and, and, and yeah. also i see this sometimes when people are reflexive and reductive in their criticism of certain things because they, i think they get too narrow sometimes right it's not just authority it's okay what is the bigger problem? Because what I see sometimes, when I see, for example, white Europeans criticize the United States, I'm just like, where do you think we got all of this from? <laughs> I'm not defending the United States, but who invented all of this? You, you, you know, I would like you to please ask a Muslim in France how good Western Europe is, right? You know, so I don't want to hear about this yeah we have more guns that's a problem but you have a lot of other problems too right and you know so it's a point is it's these problems are not local <laughs> the, the, the borders are imaginary so when that's another thing about like the fault believing in the binaries you also feel like well i'm just going to stop at that at the edge of the country in my you know sometimes you have to in terms of like research site and comparison blah 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 you know what i mean but when you're thinking about the issues all together, you got to be expansive and you're not going to be an expert. And that's fine. That's the thing. I guess you, you're going to not know stuff. Um, the other point, I, and I never got to the point, I knew I was going to do this, is that the first thing that I ever got good at as a teacher was showing love. And I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything about pedagogy it's because I wasn't trained. When I went to Korea, I didn't know what I was doing. Right. I started my career with, with no qualifications or credentials whatsoever besides being from this country um, and having a college degree. And so they sent me there, I was 21, and I didn't know what I was doing. 
And so I was doing memorization stuff because that's what they told me to do. Um, and, you know, we had fun because I'm 21 and they're like 16. So like, you know, teaching high school kids. And I was five years old. They were taller than I was. Um, well, that's not very hard, I'm sure. But the, the second year I had spent time there and I had gotten to know the culture a little bit. There's the culture again, right? But I did get to know the Korean culture a little bit. And I now mean that I was an expert. What I did know was that I knew that the education system was really a lot of pressure for them. Like, we think that the testing system is hard here. No. <laughs> like, and this is not me trying to criticize that, but in the sense of like, all I knew is that my class, I could make it a respite for them. And if I made it a respite for them, they'd probably actually speak more English if that's what the goal of the class was uh, because they would get excited to go to my class. And, you know, they, I still had to do some memorization stuff because I had to, but like, I just came up with this really elaborate project that we worked on every week. And, you know, they were really excited to come to class and do it. And I still didn't know anything. I had 40 kids in the class and a lot of them, we couldn't really communicate, but we figured it out. And, and I didn't learn any of that in school. Now, that doesn't mean you can't learn anything in school as a teacher. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying that that was a lesson I learned very early and I screwed up later. Like, I'm sure that there were times when I didn't show love. There were times when I was not kind to my students. And there were times when I really had to keep improving, especially throughout my 20s. But like the first time I realized that I could be good at this and the reason I came back to get a master's and this is a long time ago now was because I was like, I need, to, I don't know any of the technical stuff but I know this. And then I learned all the technical stuff and I forgot about that stuff. And I was doing my technical stuff because that's how the system is. Um. <laughs> it's, it's truly an art form. I, I love that you went there um, because I do think that we can get lost. Um, once again, not, not wanting to go into one end of the binary or the other end of the binary. It's a both and, right? And that core that what Bettina Love calls the mattering, right? The, the idea that we matter, that we, that, that radical love and compassion are at the core of everything that we do. And that is something that we can bring with us into any space. To me, that's at the core of any kind of work of justice. If you don't believe that people matter, if you don't believe that people deserve, that people are worthy for just being there of love and um, caring, you know, then, then you're doing the thing that you should not be doing. You know, if you don't believe in the brilliance of people, then you're not, you have no business teaching like Goldie Muhammad says. You know, I think that um, I also, because I've done some work, some writing towards like thinking about neurodivergence and different types of disability and so forth. And, um, it's another thing where you talk about cross-disciplinary. I think more people should be, everyone's going to have a grounding, but I think more people should try to work towards different spaces if they can, because I think it makes work stronger if you can write to different audiences. Um, and me, yeah, I'm being biased. I think that work is better because of it, but uh, I think that work it's true. is better because <laughs> of it. Yeah. yeah, but I think it's true. But my point is, part, one of the things I've thought a lot about is how one of the things I was I always held on to when I you know was teased as a kid or so forth that I was smart right and what did I mean by that well it mostly meant I did well on tests right 
because I didn't actually get a lot of letter grades growing up at my weird school. Um, but I did well on the, the big tests. And so that was, okay, I'm smart, right? Or oh, I read quickly. I tell you, you know, I skipped a grade. Oh, you know, all the academic stuff. But like, when you look at the history of the way intelligence is defined, like that is, it's mostly used for terrible things, <laughs> the way it's defined. And so, especially talking about people who are rejecting all this like logic and stuff like that of late, like I, I have pulled away from calling them dumb, stupid and so forth, because first of all, maybe some of them are, maybe some aren't, but that's not the problem. <laughs> the problem is they're, you can now if you want to refer to the way they're thinking you could say that they're ignorant because the facts are there they're ignoring them so it's actually more accurate to say they're ignorant because they're just looking away from the facts and secondly the way that these things happen it's it, it, it's that they're being cruel like that's the problem it's like if they were you could call it a lack of intelligence or whatever if what they were doing was only hurting themselves right because then it's just like but they're not they wouldn't be doing it if it was only hurting them. They're doing it because they don't care about the people that it is hurting, even though it's now hurting mostly them. <laughs> like it's it's now mostly hurting them. That mostly, not only, but now it's now mostly hurting them. And it they have gotten themselves to believe that this matters in some, you know, they you know, the book, Dying of Whites, you know. Um, but like so, because I I just try to, but that was hard for me. To, to, to give up on my identity as a smart person at being so so central to my belief in the good things about me. That doesn't mean that I don't think that I do things well in certain ways with my brain, but I just think it's, if you, not you, but if one identifies with that really centrally, then it's really easy to think that people who do things differently are just less intelligent than you, and that's why they do those things. Um, and that's really it, deep, Justin. You know, like if people could relate to that. I mean, for me, it's interesting because you talk about, you know, I went from my PhD to to invest in the one thing about myself that I valued at the time, that I loved at the time, which was my mind. Right? I never thought I would you know, be where I am right now, right? Like if I, if I talk about my life in that way and yet, you know, for me, like for you, it was this idea of intelligence as measured by in X, Y, or Z, how you're operational, how you operationalized it for a while. For me, it was about language and it was about how I use language and how smart I sounded while using language. Isn't that interesting? Because in a way that's kind of charted my entire, like in a very like kind of like cosmic way, like where I am today is a result of that. There's a lot to be said about the connection between intelligence and language too, right? You know, or the way these things are, are uh, you know, um, conceptualized. Yeah. Um, and, uh, if you are not able to language in a way that is acceptable, then you are not allowed to be considered intelligent, right? So, um, and then we, this goes all the way back to, to colonization and slavery because, you know, the colonized people were considered basically children because they couldn't speak the language of the people who came there. So, you know, there's, <laughs> it's like, well, they can't speak this language. It's like, they're not, they, you just keep showing up here. Of course they can't speak them anyway. Um, and, so 
that's how it's one of the ways that language became a tool to to stigmatize a tool to to classify people as disordered so on um but even if people genuinely have a an issue that makes it very hard for them to communicate and i don't just mean in name languages i mean hard to speak or hard to you know spell or something like that uh oftentimes their legitimate issues with languaging are i think used to classify them as a person who is disordered you know as there's something wrong with them as a person as opposed to here is a specific issue that they have is that here's what's wrong with them and i think that's the problem it's the medical model right right and so then the the alternate to that is what our colleague vj talks about which is this idea of how do we turn the table and do do justice by listening or are we paying attention in a different way because maybe it's not an issue of the person communicating based on what would be these programmed ways that we are used to, right? Understanding people, but maybe it's the way in which we are paying attention and or not paying attention and not understanding. So I think some of the responsibility has to fall on, on us to change the way we attend. I'm not using listen because sometimes listening can be also very ableist and it's yeah. all about just doing this. You know, we can listen in multiple ways, perceive, attend. Um, you yeah, know, they, they, change it to, they change it to perceiving subject, right? That's what they yeah. said. Yeah. Like, yes. yeah. And, um, and that's a shift so I think that I had to piece, make. Yeah. yeah, that piece is something that I think pre-service teachers, pre-service speech language therapists can be, um, that that piece can be emphasized more I, I training programs what i would love to do and i do have to end this in a second i'd love to keep talking about, um is that i would love if and the thing that we you know are going to start working on soon um one of the things i would love to do for new teachers for old teachers for whomever and not just teachers, but just people who work in language in general is like, start to build that out. Because I think sometimes the only way you get to know, for example, some there's a legitimate thing, which is that if you've never heard someone speaking a certain way, it may take you slightly longer to understand. The problem is when you take that and say, well, the other person can't speak clearly, right? You sit, like there are people like, for example, of all the people when I was in South Korea, there were always people from English speaking country, English dominant countries, mostly white. And it took me a little bit more effort to understand people from Scotland. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I, I, had to, I had to work a little bit harder, but uh, I figured it out, right? You, you wouldn't necessarily, you, you know, right? And I think that there could be, should be uh, classes for new teachers and like, giving them exposure to different types of languaging, both written and spoken and sign if they have the time and money to do that. Um, and say, this is a person from, and, and, and as a representative, obviously not everyone's gonna sound the same, but I mean, you know, this is a person from, from Shanghai, right? And have them say the same sentence and see that like, really you understand what they're saying. <laughs> like you do understand what they're saying. You just 
just haven't taken the time to pay attention. And I want that to be the industry instead of the accent reduction industry, you know? Yeah, I think that that's not a hard leap for speech language therapists. You know, there's the whole field of speech perception that has, um, that can contribute, that, that can be, you know, uh, uh, an intercept there, you know, for that purpose. I think it also is needed when it comes to disability. Yeah. You know, and I don't think we talk enough about that piece. You know, and that's really that, that's really the piece. I mean, yes, this is like this colonizing approach, this branch of my field that's not even like, why are we pathologizing accents? Like when they're not, there's, why are we pathologizing anything, but really accents? Okay, so like, let's stop there. But, but then there's the other piece of, you know, the way that we perceive or not disabled speech and language. And what does that sound like? What, what can we do so that we're not we're not using that as the filter for intelligence or ability? Does that make sense? I think I that that's the real thing. Yeah, because you know, I simply became skilled at understanding almost anybody just from being a language teacher, and I think that that's a valuable skill. And I think that I genuinely have that skill, but it took me time, it took me years. Right. Um, and, I, and it just happened because I was doing it for several years and I needed to understand what my students were saying. So I figured it out. Um, but there's teachers who won't even they'll, they'll say, you didn't say it the way I want you to. So I'm not gonna listen. Um, I don't yeah. say that because I'm, you know, morally pure. I just was just like, expeditiously, I wanted to understand what they were saying. You right. know, you know it, my job was easier because I, because I, made a, a habit of trying to understand people um and i think that that if the if the onus went to us on the on the power side for to improve things and we started that early in people's careers then i think that it would really that would be a really disruptive practice to really say mm -hmm. hey you're going to be a teacher here's all these accents you need to understand them yeah right? and there's nothing wrong with what they're saying you know what they're saying because it's written there or whatever the practice is. And you need to be able to understand what they're saying. And instead of trying to make the people say it a certain way so that we can understand them, how about they say it and you need to say what they were, you need to write down what they were trying to say and it's up to you. So, all right, Maria, uh, thank you for joining me this evening. I think this will be a great way to start the season for everybody. So uh, I was happy to have you here, even with the brief internet issues at the beginning. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. I feel like we can talk for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> well, that's a, yeah, well, that's a good sign for getting back into the podcast game. Yes.